we're going to kick off. Um, I hope you've all warmed up and refueled. Is it a little warmer? Yeah. Tiny bit, yeah, good. It's better than being hot and sweaty, as Patrick was saying. Um, so thank you so much for, for your uh, attention and great questions this morning. I'm really delighted to welcome you back. Um, we have with us here Patrick Fox, who is the director of Heart of Glass, which he'll tell you all about. Um, but it began as a Creative People and Places project in St. Helens in Merseyside. We have Evie Manning, who is the co-director of Commonwealth, uh, which is an extraordinary uh, theatre company and artist. And we have Andrew Barnett, who's the director of Gulbenkian Foundation UK, uh, who published the inquiry into the civic role of arts organisations, and I think is going to be an extraordinary piece of research and evidence which will spark new thinking around the, the development of arts organisations going forward in, uh, in the UK. So we're going to kick off with Patrick. Patrick. Great. Thank you. Hi, everyone. And thank you to Claire for the invitation to be here. Um, so as Claire mentioned, I'm director of an organisation called Heart of Glass. Um, we describe ourselves as a, as a new model arts organisation, um, developing people and, and place-driven work. We're based in and, and work from St Helens and Merseyside, which is a town of about 180,000, sandwiched between Liverpool and Manchester on the, the M62 corridor. Um, the town itself has a really great and, and, um, and amazing history and was once the centre of, of industrialised Britain. So an innovator in, in glass and pharmaceutical technology, the first industrial canal in the country. Um, and like many other places in England and across the UK, it's a town that has been forgotten, a town that's been disinvested in, a town that is now defined by its position at the bottom of a series of league tables of indices of, of deprivation, which I won't um, go through, but that's the kind of defining um, descriptor of St. Helens as a place. Our work as an arts organisation recognises and, and names um, the, the capitalists, neoliberal, racist, ableist, heteronormative, patriarchal structures in which we work. It recognises the um, environmental disaster that we are on the precipice of. Um, and so our work speaks to many, many and very democratic deficits um, that are felt powerfully and destructively in places like St. Helens. It feels very important for me to say that out loud as much as possible um, in a variety of different settings as possible because that is, in effect, our burning building. That is our collective burning building. That is the backdrop against which we're, we're working. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that we're living in a, particularly, a particular period of, of, of harsh change in which opportunity and, and dignity are routinely and, and systematically being stripped away from individuals and communities um, in many spaces or many places the space between work um, and home the civic space is fast becoming a, a void um, particularly in regional and post-industrial towns so um, this is where I place my practice as both a cultural professional and as a citizen so this is the work of, of, of Heart of Glass so what we're interested in is art that is active Art that brings people, community, action and possibility into close communion, where ideas can turn into action and where new knowledge can emerge. Um, as Claire mentioned, we were founded as part of Arts Council England's action research programme, the Creative People and Places Scheme. So we were founded in 2014, so we're, we're very, very young. Um, and in the three years that we've been in existence, um, we have set up as an independent organisation. We are held and supported by a diverse community of supporters and partners. Um, and in recent months, we were granted national portfolio status by Arts Council, which will see an underline a transition from us from being a place-based project to a place-driven national resource and commissioning agency. Um, the shorthand reach over here, of what we do 
is essentially support artists and communities in the broadest sense of the, of the word to, to collaborate and realize ambitious work together, work that reflects and responds to and challenges the, the politics of our time. So people, both individually and within communities of place or interest, are, are kind of central to our thinking and our practice. So our work is made with, for, of, about um, every community in which we work. Um, so there's some kind of snapshots of, of some of our um, mission statement there on the screen behind you. Um, in relation to today's discussion, um, and it's something that I, I've, I've given a lot of thought to over the last number of years, particularly given the context that I've just outlined that I'm, I'm working within, I feel very strongly that our role as an arts organisation is to be part of, of meaningful and sustained change. Um, and for me, that means placing artists and, and people um, at the very centre of what we do, and it means Heart of Glass being involved in all aspects of life in St Helens, and not just the arts. And I think that's a really important point for me, that um, we are not existing in isolation in a kind of voyeuristic way, that we are part of the civic mix of this place. So with that in mind, our kind of four, four tent poles for me as a kind of listening organisation, as an active organisation, um, are the following. So art, the arts, participation and practice. And the reason that we pull them out is that they are distinct concerns and distinct things that obviously connect and are interdependent and interweave seamlessly sometimes and other times not. So um, we want great art to be made and realised. We want to challenge the notion of what constitutes great and excellent. Um, we want work that is vital, urgent, transformational, driven by artists and communities, work that sends a signal to the world or creates different possibilities. We want that type of work to be to be made and produced and, and supported and create the right conditions in order for that type of work to, to thrive. We want the arts as a sector to be active, um, to be a sector that can shape agendas and change and, and respond as opposed to just being at the kind of end of a telephone or brought into the room um, when it's deemed necessary. A couple of years ago, I was part of a strategic review group in Ireland looking at arts investment in Ireland, and I was sitting opposite the table um, from a CEO of a fish finger company, um, and he had been brought into the, to the room for his expertise in, in his particular field and world, which was really great. Um, but I did think to myself, I wonder when I'll be called by a fish finger company to come into the room <laughs> and impart my wisdom. Um, so, so, so quite often, I think what we're what we're interested it's in a is life goal, that. A, a life goal. Yeah, yeah, a life goal. And there are many fish finger brands out there. Um, so, just to, <laughs> just to say, um, but just to be thinking about when when it's important for us to be in the room and when it's important for us to be outside the room throwing stones at the windows. And I think that that's a very kind of interesting thing for me to consider the arts as a as a sector. Um, participation, so to create multiple entry points into the arts, to acknowledge, and this is a really important point for me, that, that knowledge lives everywhere, um, that great art can be made by everyone and belongs everywhere. Um, what I observe across the sector sometimes, and it's the thing that gives me um, shivers down my spine and, 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 and disgusts and horrifies me in equal measure, is this kind of wholesale othering or exoticizing of communities um, and this kind of lack of appreciation for the contribution that we can all make to the making of meaning. So um, I was talking earlier on to someone that, that what we see is a lot of very sympathy-driven programming or a kind of charity model approach, and I think I would like to see more wholesale approach to, to an empathetic um, style of programming, so working in solidarity. There's a really fantastic quote by um, an activist artist called Lila Watson, and it's on the wall in our office and is on the front page of our 10-year strategy. And 
to paraphrase, it's, it's um, if, you're, if you're here to help me, um, you can leave, but if you're here because your liberation is bound up with mine, well then, let's, let's work together. And that's the, the basis of, of a kind of, and um, the starting point for our projects. And then practice, so to, to, to really grapple with some of the thorny issues that, that surround this work, to be um, in a position to speak the unspoken, to be an aid, to walk in, in solidarity, to create the conditions through which this practice can, can flourish, really. To learn from best practice around the world, but also around the corner. So really kind of thinking critically about the work that we do. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the things that I'm worried about and some of the things that, that I fear um, in my position, some of the things that, that keep me awake at night. Um, and there's many things, um, but, but um, one of the things, or, or a list of them, um, is I, I fear co-option. I fear being part of agendas that are bigger animals or beasts than me and not recognising them quickly enough or not knowing when you're part of something that is reinforcing um, a, a, a kind of convenient truth or becomes noise or distraction um, from, from real issues or real agendas. Um, I fear instrumentalisation. I fear um, the deployment of the arts to serve different agendas and actually not holding on to the, the fundamental human right that is creativity and the right to produce work. Um, I fear the narrowing concepts of prosperity, impact and value and who increasingly gets to determine what value is and what impact is and what prosperity is and how we have to navigate through those kind of ever-closing or ever-narrowing parameters. Um, and I also um, have a, have a, we're an organisation that is on this kind of journey at the moment and we've been really, really fortunate and in a really privileged position in terms of the supports that we receive, but I also have a fear around, um, around growth or some of the conventions of growth. Um, and so I want us to grow in a way that not only supports arts and content over structure, but allows us to remain agile and fleet of foot and responsive and to do the job that we are set out to do. So um, I have a fear around structure collapsing um, the content or becoming the priority over the content. So there's some of the things that keep me awake overnight. I haven't got the solutions for those things, but I think it's important to, to have them in, in the room with me, really. But what's happened in St. Helens and for us, partly as a result of our work, partly as a result of, of, of a kind of um, a perfect storm of circumstances, which is largely people-driven, the right people in the right position at the right time, is there's been a very dramatic re-engagement with the arts as a, as a critical space. Um, this is demonstrated by levels of participation and engagement in projects, but also by the adoption of, of key leaders, um, including the local authority of, of some of our philosophy as an organisation, um, and to really activate the role of arts in shaping the future identity of, of the place itself. Um, as was mentioned in the previous presentations, change is a, is a tricky business, and it's a, it's a thorny business. Um, I think it's our job as an arts organisation and as a sector to resist some of the the kind of um, psychotic routines that seem to overplay or, or, or repeat um, across the sector and to, and to leave the, dar, the, jaw, the door ajar for possibilities. So really thinking about um, new solutions for the new problems that we face. So um, what we do have is choice. We have resources, we have skills, we have purpose. Um, and we've got a project to get to work on, really. So what I wanted to end on was just some work, really. Um, through images. So <clears throat> this is a, a project that I just wanted to bring into focus um, really briefly. It's a really difficult project to talk about in presentations because it's a 12-year project 
um, and is, is, is quite, quite um, unwielding to distill into a quick presentation. So we're working with an artist called Mark Storer. He's with us for, on a 12-year residency. He's working with a variety of partners and communities across St. Helens. Um, the title of the work is Baba Barak, Have You Any Pull? A Quiet Revolution. Um, the starting point for the project is the assertion that civilization is humanity's greatest failing because um, we, we fail so desperately at it every day and it's, it's, it has in fact become a barbaric act that we surround ourselves with. And Mark has been working for the last two years and will continue to work for the next 10 years with a variety of groups. Part of the reason that it's a 12-year project is Mark is working with a group of men who statistically based on mortality rates in St. Helens will die 10 years before people in other parts of the country. So he is working with that group of men who are a council of wisdom. This is some of the men here in the landscape of St. Helens. Um, each of those men have created a self-portrait um, telling their story um, in, in, a, in a portrait form. This is Dave. Um, that's a real L, by the way. Um, that is him under a bridge in St. Helens, which caused all manner of, of um, kind of kerfuffle when we were shooting that image. And these images, this series of portraits that are large scale around the town of St. Helens, and these men are represented back to the town um, as, a, as a council of wisdom who have knowledge and wisdom to impart um, to the structure and leadership and the, and the fabric of civil society. Um, this is John. Um, this is his, his autobiographical image. Um, gardening saved his life. Um, and this is the image that he constructed with Mark and a photographer um, to represent him. So these images are large-scale um, billboard kind of size portraits around St. Helens that are kind of um, looming over us every day as we walk around the town. Um, this is an army of beauty. So on the 28th of September, a couple of weeks ago, um, in the morning time, um, children and young people, a large group of them dressed in paper boiler suits with bowler hats, um, distributed over 5,000 flowers across the town. Um, they marched through the town as an army of beauty. They were um, flanked by... Um, police horses from Merseyside Police who were covered in roses and they marched to the town hall where they gave the civic leaders within the town a new children's charter and demanded that that be enacted as a new children's charter for the borough. Um, so they assembled at the steps and they provided the town, um, the mayor, the chief executive and the leader of the council with this new um, manifesto for, for children and young people in the town, which is now being adopted as the children's charter for the borough. Um, so that is a project that is a living, live artwork um, that will continue to unfold. It's the writing of a fairy tale. That work happened on a day, and then it was withdrawn. Um, a week later, so last week, we distributed a commemorative edition of the day that St. Helens shifted um, through the local newspaper that went to <coughs> 70,000 homes. Um, so that became part of this kind of mythology and fairy tale of the town and there will be different fairy tales that will unfold over the next 12 years. So that's just, I suppose, a project just to illustrate or to highlight um, work that is in motion, that is in dialogue and that results in change but is also a really fantastic artwork in itself. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Patrick. Um, just such, such an extraordinary achievement in, in, in less than three years, I think, uh, most people would say, in regards to what you've done and the leadership that you've shown uh, in St. Helens. Eva, on to you. Patrick, that was great. Um, hi, everyone. Um, so I'm from a theatre company called Commonwealth, um, and we actually started in Bristol, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But Commonwealth to us, it's two words, and it basically means um, the wealth that there is in being common. So in being called common, or in being in common, 
our having common space, our common ground. But for us, it was all about the wealth of um, being common, because often we're told that being common or being poor or being working class, that there is no wealth in that. So the company was born out of that, really, and it was born in Bristol, um, kind of a, out of a frustration of the arts scene here, so I think that can be useful. Um, the other good things about starting in Bristol was that um, the things that helped us here, and I think the things that I say whenever people say, oh, what would you say to young people, or if young people come and ask us, was a real DIY culture, so it was all about doing it yourself and just getting on and doing it. So we were squatting big buildings. There was a lot of creative young people around who were just up for working, so we obviously didn't have any money for years, and we were just doing big things and really ambitious things in big places. And I couldn't... I don't know if that could have really started in the same way somewhere else than Bristol in some ways, because I've never really known anywhere like Bristol, so I've got a massive credit to Bristol. Um, yeah, but then I'm kind of like keep that with me. The other thing that really helped us, I think, was that we had no clue about the art world. And I, again, really try and hold on to that because I think that's really important to not play the game or try and second guess or to try and be in the art world. I think you've always got to be operating from a place that is not the art world. So I deliberately, especially more and more, I don't go to the theatre, I, I try and avoid it all. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I don't find it helpful, because it, 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 I don't know, I, I get angry, I sit in places and I think how much money has been spent on this, and I'm often, to be honest, quite angry about money, how money gets wasted, because I'm, I live in Bradford, which is a city <coughs> with no money, so I get quite angry when I go and see a lot of public money being, like, I don't know, I know there's a big debate about that, but I, I, I try not to see stuff, and I think it comes from this thing of when we started out, um, we didn't know what Edinburgh Festival was, we didn't know what Arts Council funding was, we were just making work, and then people would say to us, oh, you should go to Arts Council, or you should um, take this to Edinburgh, or whatever, and we didn't know really what it was, but I think that helped us, because we did things that now, I think people would say that was a bit bonkers, because we'd do stuff like, everywhere we went, we did a play called Argos House, which started in Bristol, um, that was about domestic abuse and it took place in different houses around the country um, and the audience would let themselves into the house and then they would walk around the house and action would happen around them so the experience was a lot around about hearing through the walls and the doors and the ceilings because that's what the experience of domestic abuse is like and we built that with lots and lots of women and men um, from across the country but specifically in Bristol working with domestic abuse charities and they would come into rehearsals They'd, they would just, that was a real founding part of our process, because that's how we always work. We interview, then people come in and they comment and reflect on stuff, then we build it, then they keep coming back in. So it's always really open-ended, which I'll talk about a bit more. Um, but yeah, one of the things that we did with that play was everywhere we went, because we were really passionate about it, we were like, we can't take a play about domestic abuse to Edinburgh, we were on a council estate in Edinburgh in a house, and we are like, we can't take actors from England, it won't feel right. And then when we went to Bradford, we thought, well, we can't take actors from Edinburgh to Bradford. It won't feel right, because it's got to feel like it's happening on your street. So we recast everywhere we went, which was really <coughs> a massive amount of work. And now I think people, the touring model of a theatre is to take the same actors. But because we didn't know about these touring models, we just didn't do that. So we were like, everywhere we went, we'd find a house. We'd make all those relationships fresh again. So we weren't just coming in and saying, we've got a show. We would, from the beginning, work with the NHS, but work with the police. Um, then after that, kind of by accident, well, 
we made a play called No Guts, No Heart, No Glory, which was based on interviews with Muslim female boxers and inspired by uh, my neighbour, who wore burqa and has nine children and was a boxer. Um, and with that play, because we couldn't find the... When we, we just were saying, who do we want to work with? We were doing workshops. And in the end, we cast, like, five teenage schoolgirls from Bradford who have since gone on to tour the world with that play and been on BBC for, um, and we've done loads of stuff with that play. Um, but that, what I kind of wanted to talk about today, really, was for me, at the moment, Commonwealth, we're about to become an MPO, um, like Heart of Glass. And to be honest, when people kept saying to us, you should go to be an MPO, and I was like, I really don't want to, we don't want to be an MPO. This went on for about, like, two years. We just did not want to become an MPO. Now we are, and I'm, my whole fight or the battle in me at the moment is how do we keep the spirit of the kind of amateur nature of how we started, how do we keep that alive? Um, so, yeah, I think keeping that DIY, keeping that play alive, and I just wanted to read a quote from Edward Said, because... Sometimes I still do read. Um, so he says, the particular threat to the intellectual and the artist today isn't the academy, nor the suburbs, nor the appalling commercialization of journalism and publishing houses, but rather an attitude I will call professionalism. Professionalism means thinking of your work as an intellectual, as is something you do for a living with one eye on the clock and another cocked at what is considered to be proper professional behaviour, not rocking the boat, not straying outside the accepted paradigms or limits, making yourself marketable and above all presentable. And that's how I find so much artwork, to be honest, is that it's making itself presentable and it's second guessing and I think that often happens because it hasn't gone through a very messy process. And it hasn't gone through a messy process because it's had quite a lot of um, professionalization put in on it from the beginning in terms of how you explain your project in a funding bid, in terms of the deadlines that are put on you. So all of the things that would strip away the mess and the artistic things because you're kind of not allowed to do that. So there's a lot of art structures that will work against making art. Um, and I also think they're the things that exclude working class people from going into the arts. And that's, I don't, my big thing is like, there's a lot of talks about it, there's a lot of schemes, there's a lot of like proposals and reports and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, actually, I think our biggest threat for working class people becoming artists is the professionalization because we all accept it and it lives within everyone. It's like the whole thing about capitalism. It's like we've all got this little capitalist living inside us. But the professionalism I think over the last 20, 30 years is really sitting inside people because, and that's why only certain people get the jobs because when they come in, they act and talk and carry themselves like a professional. And to be able to do that at 20 years old or whatever, uh, that only that comes from a place of privilege. Of course, it does because. If you've grown up in a family where no one's working, or you've not seen those pathways, then how do you know how to carry yourself with that much confidence? Um, so I think that's a real problem, is that we trust the professionals, and we trust professionalization more than we trust people. Um, and I think we've really got to do a lot of work to overcome that, because that's <coughs> happening everywhere. The professionalization is our sort of space, so how our public spaces become really bland and corporate. And, Basically, we suck a lot of the amateur and the life out of places, and that's like on an increase, I would say. So I don't know how much the schemes and all of that are going to do anything in the face of that, because it's an attitude that's really prevailing and really prevailed, um, which is what I'm trying to kind of fight against. 
So anyway, I was going to talk about some natural fear. Um, so I don't, how do I get on to my one? Just keep going. Just keep going. Oh, yeah, here we go. So um, we did this play... Sorry. Hi. Uh, we did a big play recently with National Theatre Wales um, called We're Still Here, which was made um, over about the course of a year and a half with lots of steel workers and union reps. And it was about um, the fight to save the steel industry in South Wales and also masculinity and purpose and um, what happens to industrial towns when they lose their purpose, which is a very common theme across the world and across the UK. Um, and we made that play, basically. It was what we've learned from it, I suppose, was that... Because we just are, we've never worked with a big producing um, company before, like National Theatre Wales, who obviously have deadlines and have quite a rigorous process. And we've always just produced our own work and gone and done stuff by ourselves. And so we've never really had to be answerable to other deadlines and to a machine of how something works. We're still here. We just approached it as we would always approach a play. And then that posed difficulties later on. But we basically, we interviewed lots of steel workers. We spoke to lots of union reps. We talked to lots of people in the town. And like I said, with Argos House, we just kept inviting them in. So all the time they would come into rehearsals uh, they would literally say, no, that's not right, and we'd scrap a scene. So everyone was getting quite nervous in stage management or getting quite nervous in the Nashville Wales because they were like, oh, sh what is this? Because we were like, no, no, Jason says it's not right, so we're cutting it. And, um, and, and, and I think even for the actors, that was quite a journey to go on because we really, really valued, and we would completely have an open-door policy the whole time in rehearsals so that people were coming in. And if they didn't think it it wasn't right, then it wouldn't be right. And we work completely on an emotional level, so we were never really asking people to explain themselves or for it to get too detailed an explanation. It was all just about feeling and emotion, which is also quite hard to quantify. Um, so our big thing that we learned, I suppose, through working with a big producing house like National Theatre Wales, um, was how we step away and try and define the amateur and try and kind of really push for the amateur to still be allowed in those frameworks because we think it's necessary and it's needed and like the commonwealth thing of how we call ourselves like all the people that we worked with they are the commonwealth and so they need to be part of that process and we had people like um we had like gary he's a he's a steel worker he like literally we he would work in 12-hour shifts and then come and do a show and gary is a poet and you know, he's got stacks and stacks of poetry at home. He's got a really beautiful voice. And this was a real outlet to him. But on the last night, he was basically crying. And he was quite a jokey character, so he never would have cried. Steelworkers don't cry. That's what we got told all the time by crying steelworkers. Um, but Gary was basically like, I feel like I've been in a shell and it's cracking and I don't know if I want to come out, of my, come out of this or not because I'm scared of all of these things that I've been containing for all these years because he's, he's, he's been going home and writing amazing poems for years and I think someone like Gary walking into most arts institutions wouldn't get taken seriously as a poet and that's just a fact. And the amount of it, like one of the poems that he... Uh, read and performed in the show was about seeing two of his friends dying in the blast furnace and dragging them out and then having to go home and tell his son and for Gary's like obviously wealth of knowledge and experience that I'm not sure I can't say this for certain but I don't know how many of us in this room would have that we wouldn't have experienced that so how much do we need to know and listen to someone like Gary and how much are we not and that's kind of a 
a big question, and I think that's the big challenge really facing arts organisations is, and I know this is said all the time and it's a bit boring, but it's like, how do we actually let different stories be told? Not just let them, I think you're right, Patrick, this thing around often community theatre or community work is seen as like a sympathy vote or... But I also think, on the flip side of that, I also think more dangerously it's used as a cover-up because you can get a photograph of some young people dancing and put it on the front cover of your council brochure despite the fact that all your youth centres have closed. And it's all, I think more and more art and theatre is being used for that. It's being used as a, a real cover-up and I'm really aware of that and I don't want to be part of that because I think that's again part of this kind of corporatisation of life is that you can take experiences away and then you can put a photograph in its place. So I'm really aware of that and not being part of that whilst working with people. Um, oh, yeah, I suppose just this thing around... Ah, I had some, like, concluding points. Uh, <laughs> this is my, like, call, not being a professional. Um, sorry about that. Um, yeah, so just this thing about the spirit of the amateur and the spirit of responsiveness and being able to work within that because obviously the professionalism is that you can have amazing lighting, you can have a lighting budget, it's really beautiful, people need that as well. But then how do we have access to those budgets with the spirit of the amateur and that's what we're still trying to find our way through really and make that happen and as I said I'm from Bradford, I grew up in Bradford and and I live there now, and I just want to say very quickly, because I like to represent Bradford where I go. Um, but Bradford, I don't know if many people know it, but it's um, got a, it's one of the largest population, like largest cities in terms of population in the country. It's got a bigger population than Bristol, than Liverpool, than Cardiff, than Edinburgh. It's the sixth biggest population. 45% of the population is under 19. And I don't know if many people, so it's the youngest city in Europe. Um, and I don't know if many people know much about Bradford, but there isn't an art centre there, there isn't a theatre there, there isn't many big NPOs there. Well, there is no NPOs there that are getting over a certain amount, you know, that are banned to or whatever you call it. Um, so I, when I see questions like this and debates and stuff going on about future cities, I can't help but feeling quite angry because Bradford's a city that's been so failed and left behind and all those young people, those hundreds of thousands of young people being left behind and there's a part of me that feels like there's a racism to that because it's a very Muslim city so I get quite angry <laughs> about those kind of things and I get quite angry about the distribution of wealth and blah 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 um, and then I also kind of get a bit like well fuck you anyway because I don't maybe it's okay for Bradford to be a very grassroots city where people get on and do things themselves and We've, like, nearly something ridiculous. I don't actually know the statistics. I'm not going to make it up. But there's so many empty buildings in Bradford, it's unreal. And what's been happening more and more is we're getting temporary spaces. So we've got one, Commonwealth, we've got a shop, which is co-run and co-programmed, co-facilitated by about um, 15 teenage girls and 15 women, most of whom are not from an arts background. So we're putting on loads of stuff there. We've done loads of plays and 
you know, creative workshops and also lots of political discussions. So we're kind of doing our bit, but we're a tiny organisation. Like, I wouldn't even call us an organisation. So it's this weird question around, like, what are the challenges facing arts organisations? Well, it's quite hard to answer when I'm not in a city with arts organisations <laughs> because there's no, there is no infrastructure, there is no operation around that in terms of the people there. So I often find a lot of the rhetoric from funders really empty because... I'm in a city with all of these people and that's being really failed and forgotten. So, I don't know. Um, yeah, but then amongst it all, just do your little bit, don't you? And you just kind of <laughs> do your bit. Anyway, I've talked for too long. Thanks. Evie, thank you so much. Your voice is... Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm quite moved, actually, by what you've said. And... Um, uh, I, I think that somehow um, your voice keeps coming through whenever I hear it um, really strongly cutting through the shit, cutting through the bullshit and reminding us of the ethics underneath what we're doing um, to uh, check our privilege and to really think about uh, what, we, what we mean by change. What, what could that possibly mean in, in, in these kinds of contexts? So thank you so much. Um, Andrew, follow that. <laughs> I know, what a challenge. I think... Uh, I'll do it for you. It's going to be quite a lot, sorry. Um, just as a, a word of apology, I've got these notes here which I can't actually read and they're all in the wrong order because I keep dropping them. Uh, but um, uh, I'm just humbled and privileged, really, to follow the pair of you and, indeed, the speakers earlier uh, this morning. Uh, uh, I mean, not least because I feel in part as though I'm probably part of the establishment who are rightly poking in the eye. Uh, and um, uh, because we're a charitable foundation, that means we sit on some of the wealth that you deride. But our ambition is that that is spread in the common interest. And uh, we do that in all sorts of different ways, including funding uh, organizations, not necessarily your organization, but organizations <laughs> like yourselves, but also trying to learn from that, think from that, and to bring ideas in from the periphery and try and make them uh, mainstream. And that's why we've uh, published uh, this report, the front cover of which you can see here. And it's not just a report, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to all of you to uh, contribute to the thinking as it evolves and to the journey which we have sought in uh, uh, one way or another to try and route map to enable us all to consider what the future means for us and how we might want to work differently and organize differently. But it's more than that as well uh, because it is born of ambition and it is born of passion and the real passion that the arts offers us a window through which we can collectively uh, address some of the challenges you, Patrick, talked of. Uh, and I think that that's absolutely critical. Uh, and it's critical that we do so in a way that avoids the silos that David derided earlier. So uh, one of the things that I really worried about was the split between the amateur and the professional. And I think we've got stuck in an era of over-professionalization. And I celebrate the involvement of the <coughs> sorts of people that you both work with. Uh, I 
uh, worry about the split between uh, the arts and wider civil society because I think that actually we're all as one and the arts is not some cult or sect. Uh, and I worry about this idea that on the one hand that people talk about the intrinsic role of the arts and people talk about the instrumental role of the arts and I think that argument is a dead end. Indeed, it's as much of a dead end as I think the argument about access is limiting. And lots of people have talked about access and lots of people have talked about diversity. Lots of people have talked about creative education. And yet what we've tried to do with this report is to reframe all those arguments uh, under this brand uh, of being <coughs> civic. And the word, uh, Sally used it uh, often, it's uh, the least worst word we can think of, uh, and uh, yet it is something which I hope we can unite around, uh, and for a number of reasons. Partly because it has roots in history. Now, some people don't like it for that reason, but actually I'm one of those people who believes that uh, there is so much in our past that we can learn from in order to chart our future. So I quite like the word civic, but we spent ages, bloody ages, trying to define it, and it was a complete waste of time. Uh, so what we came up with instead uh, was, uh, okay. was uh, some uh, metaphors. And they are metaphors. Actually, it's quite interesting. Some people don't get metaphor, but, uh, but, but some people do as well. So these are just metaphors for people to think of themselves, their organizations. So uh, an arts organization could be a college. And I don't mean the building of a college, but places of learning. It could be a town hall, uh, places where debates can take place uh, and people can engage in decision making. Uh, uh, I'm really uh, chuffed to hear about the young people taking the charter to uh, the town hall. That's the sort of thing that arts organisations can do, and it's their role as town halls. Uh, David, I think it was David, talked about uh, parks, uh, and we've used that as a metaphor as well. And just think about the park. Uh, you know, I've only been walking in my local park since I got a dog, and I just think that there's something so liberating about doing whatever we want uh, and uh, encountering people I just would never encounter otherwise. And actually, arts organizations could be just those sorts of places, porous, open, where people can come together in a world which is really fragmented and diverse. Uh, and also uh, temples and homes, so places where people feel that they can uh, belong. The other approach that we've taken, beyond metaphor, was to think about principles. So if you want to, if you feel that civic is your mission, what, what are the principles that would govern your activity? And I think... Uh, there's some principles there and please read them I'm not going to read them out to you uh, uh, and, uh, and respond to us through the consultation tell us if you think of the, these are the sorts of principles that let's say uh, Claire your trustees would be willing to adopt and say this is what we sign up to and this is what we aspire to uh, and we'd really love to know whether uh, those are the sorts of things uh, that worked for you or will work for you uh, but there's uh, some other things besides. So actually, what are the, one of the things that we, we did was we uh, interviewed uh, 40 leaders of arts organizations, large and small, who we felt were doing really, really interesting work that we might describe as being civic. And actually, we're doing another 40 case studies as well. And we listened to what those, uh, uh, the leaders of those organizations said. 
And uh, Claire was one of them when she was uh, leading situations, and it's one of the case studies. There's 20 published in the report, and I really urge you to look at them because they're absolutely inspiring and fascinating. But the stories that came out of them were quite common. And uh, uh, they're all led by inspiring people, but inspiring and humble people. Uh, they don't compromise on quality. Uh, they face some of the same challenges, uh, funding, reliance on project funding in particular, uh, and you know, obviously in an era of di diminishing uh, resources. Uh, issues around language, which again is why we've come back to, let's try and find a common language, and we think civic may be, uh, may be that. Skills are really important. So Claire and I were talking earlier on about uh, the um, whether arts organizations and the people working in them really have the skills to engage deeply with the communities in which they're, uh, uh, in which they're situated. And I certainly believe that if we can enhance some of those skills and marry it with the creativity that, uh, uh, that artists bring, we can release a real sort of genie from the bottle. Uh, uh, there is also a whole issue about uh, growth and replication. I think growth is a bit vexed, and in fact, I'm a bit anti-growth. I'm much more uh, uh, inclined to want to support ideas to spread, uh, and we just don't have the ways in which to understand how to do that. And yet we do. If you look at the social sector, they do this all the time, and because the arts has <laughs> sort of stepped out of the social sector, it's not failed to grasp those mechanisms that are used there to tap into great ideas and take them and adapt them and trial them in other places. So we're uh, taking forward this consultation. The next step will be to publish the responses to it and then to develop uh, with a whole range of partners a, an appropriate and joined-up response which uh, may see some reformed funding, uh, changes at the level of policy, uh, uh, different sorts of partnerships which cross boundaries between the public and the private, uh, the, uh, uh, the professional and the non-professional, uh, and uh, support for organizations in really thinking through <coughs> how this can be part of their DNA. Because I'm not convinced that bolting on civic projects to organizations is the way to do this. Actually, I think they need to be rooted in organizations who have civic as part of their DNA. So supporting projects, we probably will do. We've yet to design how, but only alongside really introducing the notion into organizations as they go through what is a, uh, an exciting but challenging period of change in the face of the challenges that, uh, 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 that uh, you've, we've uh, all talked about and we know about. So... That's the report. Uh, it is, as I say, an invitation, not just a tomb to be set on a, on a mantelpiece. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. I'm interested to pick up on something that Evie was saying there around professionalization and the, uh, what modes of behavior and expectation <coughs> exclude. And um, just coming back to Patrick and Evie, really, in terms of thinking of um, the changes that your your report is starting to see across types of arts organisations, small groups, different kinds of projects that are going on across the UK. And I'm interested to ask you both. Um, I felt in both of your provocations that there's a sense of things that you say no to, sense, uh, a sense of things that, uh, routes that you won't go down, 
because uh, those are either conventional routes or they lead you to the wrong to um, to the wrong type of behaviour. And I, I just wondered whether maybe before we open out, you could just touch on those a bit. I, I know, Patrick, um, in your case, I'm thinking of this kind of pressure, perhaps that Heart of Glass has to have an art centre or a building, and picking up on what Evie's saying around arts infrastructure in Bradford. So, so what, what are the sorts of things that you either have said no to or your ethics is telling you actually that's the wrong thing to do? Maybe a Patrick for... <laughs> um, well, we, we, had a, we had an interesting... Um, we came into the world in an interesting way because we were, we were based in a rugby club in St. Helens, um, which is a rugby league club. So I won't bore you with the differences between rugby league and rugby <laughs> union, but there are differences. Um, and and I, was, I was sitting next to um, a, a community coach um, with a laptop, and that was how we, we started as a project. And um, what was really interesting about the rugby league um, model is that it's completely community-driven and based. And there's a real recognition of the role of the amateur, the volunteer, the professional, and they all have a part to play, and it's very respectful. And yet in the arts, it seems that we're unable to do that um, because we feel it's a, tre a threat to our professionalism or it's a, it's a diminishing or, or a deprofessionalization of the sector or, or whatever. So um, I think that you know, it's, it's, there's other um, worlds out there that I think we can look at and kind of understand the ecologies that exist within them and how they how they work to a, to a bigger aim I think in terms of the, the, the kind of line in the sand um, which I think is the, is the question of you know what you um, what you would do and what you, you wouldn't do I think it constantly changes and I think um, and it terrifies me and that was that was the part of the reason that I wanted to, to say that out loud as part of the presentation because it's it's not always cut and dry and sometimes you can find yourself on a train that's so far down a track and then you go okay this, the destination has changed here how, how do I how do I un, unhook from 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 the engine, um, and then you you you're responsible for people's livelihoods, or you're connected into various different partnerships and agendas. So it's it's very um, messy, very very messy. And I think that um, one of the ways that I that I, I interrogate that is by talking to people, talking to friends, talking to colleagues, talking to a board. We're we're working on a project at the moment. Um, with a variety of different people who are looking at designing across the local authority, redesigning a care system um, for the borough. And we're looking to create a, kind of a logic model for investment through non-arts funding through this kind of care system. And I've been badgering them for about two months now to, to see if they could have a philosopher in the room with them. Because I think when you're talking about care, what, what do we mean by care? And that, that feels like the first point. Um, so it's, it's things like that where you're just creating the kind of artificial moment to hold a mirror up to yourself and go, God, am, am, I, am I part of the problem here? Yeah. Am, I, am, I, am I reinforcing these structures? Um, and I haven't found an adequate way to do it, but I think um, I'll keep trying. I suppose it's the only way that I can, I can, um, I can respond to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've said no to things that have been really commercial, I suppose, that have felt like... Our, actually, it's funny because writing a mission statement, and uh, we've kind of been quite explicit now. It took, we were like, mm, should we say this? And we're like, oh, let's just say it. But um, it's like, we say something like, uh, we make like we make theatre with, by, and for working class people. And we were a bit like, oh, it was quite funny because we just had to say this. <laughs> and we were like, obviously, you know, everyone can come and see the work, but in terms of who we're making it for and with and by, we are making it with by and for working class people. So when we've been approached to do some, well, yeah, someone wanted us to do like a eight-week run in London that was going to be sponsored by Nike. They had funding from Nike to do um, No Guts, No Heart, No Glory. 
And we were like, and it was going to be 20 pound a ticket. And we were like, well, obviously not. They came to us with this kind of proposition. And uh, we talked to them for a little bit, because you know you don't want to say no to stuff. And we thought, oh, it's really good to get the to get this out there and to communicate with people. But then it really felt like their ambitions or their, their, the reason they wanted to do the show was not the reasons why we made the show. So there's always that match going on. And then at the moment, we're actually saying no to some things. We've been offered to work in a very nice, posh theatre in Karlsruhe in South Germany, which is very beautiful. It's the state theatre. I shouldn't really have to say this because we've been in a bit of But um, when basically we start, we kind of like went to see the theatre, we were like, oh, this is really beautiful, like brilliant. Well, we've never worked in a theatre before. We were like, oh, this is really interesting. Because it's like being off, we, we would have a run for three months and it's very rare to get a community piece of theatre. It was in a Volks theatre department to get that level of stage kind of thing. So we were like, oh, wow, this is exciting. And then, so we kind of said yes, and now we're trying to say no. We are saying no. But we, um, because then it, when we started talking to them about how we work with people and how we wanted to bring people in and the process and da-da-da and how important the process was, and they just did not get it. So that thing about the machine, and they just couldn't, they just can't do it. So we laid out and said, this is our process. And they said, well, we can't do that. And we said, well, we can't do the show then. So, um, yeah, I think it's when things become about the commercialization. And also... Just they've got a lot of, they had quite a lot of work to do because they were saying the people that they thought they might get as participants would all be speaking German. We were like, oh, it would be really great to get people who might have other languages because there's a really large refugee community in Germany. They said, oh, no, it's very difficult. We can't. <laughs> we can't. We can't. We, we've, not, we've never been able to do that before. And we said, well, if you're not really prepared to try them, we're probably not going to work with you. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, they're the kind of things that we say no to. Um. It feels like for both of you, you know, that, 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 that you're on the edge of something, you know, there's so much at stake, you know, and there's, uh, in that decision. And I'm interested, Andrew, you know, the perception of Gulbenkian, the perception of a funder or a research-based organisation is, is that it, it, it's safer or securer, you know, that you're the establishment, you just self-described as, as the establishment, you know. So, so what makes you... Uh, what keeps you awake at night? You know, what, what, what's, the, what's at stake for you? What's the anxiousness making? Well, because we don't have to raise money. You yeah. guys have to raise it and spend it. You, yeah. know, you have to do the work. We don't have to raise the money. And I feel, therefore, that places a responsibility on us to work twice as hard uh, uh, and to put values right at the centre of what we're trying to do. And uh, what <coughs> keeps me awake at night is uh, that tension between pushing hard enough and uh, not getting enough resistance, which is quite often the sign that you're breaking through. And uh, it's so uh, subtle a judgment, but that's, that's the stuff that, that worries me. Uh, but the, and it particularly worries me when you're bringing together you know, unusual suspects, uh, for example. So you know, this whole debate about the relationship between uh, the professional and the non-professional, actually, uh, bringing these worlds together is, isn't easy. And, uh, you know, we funded a project with the Royal Opera House, uh, I was telling you about it earlier on, which I was really pleased about, partly because it came from... Uh, it, it, I'll tell you the whole story, actually. So it came from, uh, uh, it came from a project we did with the, with the, uh, during the Olympics when uh, 300 homeless people performed in the Royal Opera House. And at the end of it, it was absolutely amazing, really inspiring, tears rolling down people's faces, and I was asked, because I'm never happy enough, uh, if I was happy, and I said, I won't be happy until they're on the main stage. 
because the reality is that quite a lot of uh, uh, non-professional activity is put in the rehearsal suite. Uh, and uh, uh, through that relationship that we'd fostered, we managed to get Streetwise Opera, a small organization that works with homeless people with really, a really specialized way to work in partnership with the Royal Opera House. It would have been bonkers for the ROH to do that themselves. It had to be done in partnership. And what that requires, though, is large organizations to be humble, it requires the ability for people to make connections, and that's some of the stuff that we do, and also for people to broker, because I can tell you that relationship was not at all easy, and we had to step in repeatedly to try and recalibrate it. And uh, that's the stuff that keeps me awake at night, because I think we just need to try harder and uh, <coughs> think wider and more ambitiously. What, what do you think is the resistance to a report like this? What, what might people be... What have you heard in response to the report? Uh, uh, two things. And again, uh, what, we've, what we've sought to do with this, this is the first report, and we've tried to make it as inclusive and open as possible because we didn't want to be overly provocative too quickly. And I don't know uh, what the next step, whether we'll rack up the volume. I think we, we may turn the volume up a bit. Uh, but actually, there, so there's a contradiction, really, between uh, are we being radical enough or, uh, or, on the other hand, are there examples of organizations in there who will frighten the horses? And I'm not going to tell you who the quote came from. But actually balancing that is going to be the really tricky thing. And I think that but, uh, because actually what we're trying to do is surface issues and not tell people what the answers are, but allow people and organizations to self-discover. Oh, what's unusual about the report, I thought? Uh, before we open out, is, is, is that it also names the thing that we don't talk about, which is what are the issues. Like, this is great work. These are amazing case studies. But half of the leaders that you spoke to speak about capacity problems. Uh, half of the leaders are exhausted, yeah. you know, um, getting burnt out. Uh, because this work is hugely resource-heavy, isn't it? Engagement work requires a different kind of emotional and financial resource. Um, and, and I think I, I'd personally like to see more of that in the next report. I want to see more of some of the truths of this kind of work being spoken so that there's an understanding around the responses from, from funders, from local authorities, from different gatekeepers to what it really takes to do this work. So, and that's what I really welcome in it, um, just as an aside, is that I think it's very rare you usually have a report that sort of celebrates and waves the flag, but doesn't actually say, but this is what, this is what it's doing to the sector. Well, what's good about it is it's not my voice either. It's yeah. the voices of the people doing the work. Yeah. And that's what we've surfaced. And you're absolutely right about the pressures on leaders. But, and one of the reasons why that is is because of the, you know, these issues are all related, which is why we want to actually take a more systemic approach to addressing them, which is, you know, it's no wonder that leaders stretch if they're re reliant on project funding. Yeah. It's just this revolving door, which is completely exhausting. Yeah. And but there are all sorts of ways of addressing that, and that's what we're trying to surface mm -hmm. and enable people to tell us what they think the answers are, rather than us say, oh, here's our 20 recommendations, and then nothing to happen. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's not just about 
the money and all of that. It's, it's also about the responsibility that people feel when you're working with people. You feel a lot of responsibility because you've got that change or you're trying to make that happen. And you've got people there who are really hungry or really want it and you're like, how am I really going to support them through to something because they often will get a glimpse of it like they work on a project and they love it and they come alive like Gary or Gareth another one of the steel workers who was in the play who was like this has been cathartic I don't want to go back to my normal you know it's like there's so much responsibility all the time to the people that you're working with and then responsibility to the whatever the sector or blah, blah, blah. my son keeps doing <laughs> started doing it um, the sector it does exist <laughs> anyway um, so there's all of these like different responsibilities and I think that's what burns people out and I think the way that funders or whoever can <coughs> help is for sharing that responsibility that if all organisations are doing it instead of just some who are like oh well done for you doing it when it's not about just one or two or whatever doing it, it's like, actually, how is that shared? So hopefully that's what the report will help. Well, you, I think you're absolutely that. right. And I mean, I think that the sort of hero leadership that, you know, we've been sort of addicted to belongs in the 20th century. And actually, the sorts of people you work with have just as much potential to become leaders exactly. as anybody else. Yeah. And we have the duty to create those pathways to enable them to do that. Yeah, I was really excited in Bristol, actually, on Wednesday night to hear in the discussion after the Mayor's State of the City address <coughs> to hear about distributed leadership in this city, and that that's the future, actually. Um, and it's about, about organisations such as this being catalysts for distributed leadership across the city. As Which requires different models. Absolutely. Right, so I'm sure there's loads of, look at that, brilliant. Um, so this lady here first in the middle. Hi there, I'm Kelly from the Bike Shed Theatre. Um, I'm really interested to hear you talk about um, your organisations being listening organisations. And um, I just wondered if you had any tips for organisations who are looking to do that but haven't actually got a track record of doing that at the moment. How can we begin to best listen to the people in our community? Because I'm very aware, as you just mentioned, that there's a huge responsibility with that. So I'd like to learn <coughs> a little bit more on that. Did everybody hear that question? Sorry, there's a bit of walking. So um, how, how, would, uh, how would the panellists think about their organisations or, or groups as thinking of listening organisations or groups? Patrick? Yeah, um, I suppose the, 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 the point I was, I was making in the presentation is that, that we, our responsibility or our, our, the conversations we have don't just exist within the art world, that they exist within the kind of wider, wider mix, really. So... Um, you know, it, it means, you know, like Sally mentioned, that there's a theme emerging here, you know, going to a waste management meeting about waste management and finding a, a route or a connection or um, lots of cups of tea, lots of kind of open sessions, lots of... Um, and I think what, what happens is we, we always start a project which, which is just a, about a, a question and then this kind of community of inquiry builds around it. Um, and that propels the project then. So when we start a project, we never know what it is that we're making. We just know what it is that we're talking about, and then that can go off in a million different directions. Which is why, you know, I I I love the work because it's 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 endless possibilities, and I think it's having the the confidence and the, the right structure organisationally to be able to follow those routes because some of them just peter out and they go to a dead end, and then others become become work or become things that um, that meet a public, but all of it is the work, 
Um, and, I, and I think that that's something that I struggle with in terms of the sector. So you get your evaluation forms and you fill them in and you, and you hand them in every quarter or whatever it is that you have to do. Um, and I always look at them and I go, that's not the work. It's never, it never represents what's happened in that last quarter or that last year. Um, and you know, that, that, that's fine to a degree, um, it doesn't need to, but, um, but I think it's being able to, to, to make those pursuits and, and be in that conversation. And I think you know, one of the things for me that felt really urgent was you know, walking around with, with arts investment amongst the backdrop of completely dismantling of the community development sector, of completely crumbling services. And it feels, in some ways, it feels embarrassing to be mm -hmm. walking around mm -hmm. with funding. So if it's not in relationship or in solidarity with some of those different agendas, then for me, um, it's, not, it's not the right thing for me to do. So I think that, that purpo purposeful usefulness um, is really important to connect with because there's there's a huge amount of need out there, um, and you know, like like Sally mentioned, if you're building a skate park and then the youth service is cut in the middle of that project, you have a responsibility to respond to that. You don't have a responsibility to fix it all the time, but you have to be part of that that dialogue. Otherwise, yeah, I don't know what we're doing. Another David here. Uh, hello, um, I'm David Drake. I'm director of Photo Gallery, which is a national photography agency in Wales, and I'm also director of Diffusion, which is a biannual kind of international festival. I should mention that I live in Bristol and have done <laughs> for two decades. Um, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting about this discussion, um, I mean, apart from the fact that we, I think we're all guilty that we fall into sort of rhetoric that arts organisations use to kind of justify their existence, but I'm just sort of thinking that we talk in the generality about cities and about um, the right solutions, the right way of kind of working with disenfranchised pe people. And I th from my experience, cities are, are different. They're kind of complex organisms. And I do know Bradford, um, and it has a very particular kind of industrial, post-industrial history. Obviously, as you mentioned, um, the high percentage of young people in the Muslim kind of community is very much, you know, that which makes it distinct from <coughs> Bristol or Brighton or, or wherever. And so, you know, maybe the solutions for Bradford, and I know in 1998, Bradford unilaterally declared itself as media, European media capital or something, or European capital of photography. But, you know, rather than trying to kind of talk in the generality about how institutions should change or the role of the artist in the kind of changing society, we should drill deeper into specific kind of city context and understand um, the history that's led us to where we are now, understand the possibilities um, of the future, and then devise the solutions, whether that's the, you know, the, which institutions you need or, or how artists should respond to that situation accordingly. Yeah. Evie, do you want to come back on that at all? Yeah, um, just this thing of... Um uh, every city is different, um, of course, and of course we should be listening and responding to each city and the people there, but I also think that people do want the same things, and I, I think that's why I kind of, I mean, I know it's a big statement to say that it's racist, but I think there is a lot of system, systemic racism that kind of assumes that people don't want art centres, and they think, oh, well, Muslim people won't go to art centres, or they don't want music venues, or... So I think there's also this thing about saying, well, actually, no, people do want that and I think that's been the biggest thing that we've learned with Commonwealth is people have always said because we've always worked on like well we've always worked basically where people aren't really going to see art 
And we will sometimes get people saying, oh, they won't understand that, or they won't get that. And we're like, no. But in fact, what we find more and more is the more experimental it is, the more experimental, because we're quite experimental in, in a way, the more experimental it is, the more that people who've never been at the theatre in their life will like it, and they'll bring someone else, because they've never seen anything like it. So I think there's something about, I don't know, like, there's a lot of judgment and put on par places, that, like St Helens or whatever, that would say, oh, people in St Helens wouldn't want an art organisation. They wouldn't want that. And you can... But then, actually, of course, people do. And, of course, people in Bradford do want that. So I think it's about, I don't know, yeah, like, listening and all of that, but then also doing it and, and somehow making a case for it. And I don't know if anyone's got any advice on that. I'd love to talk to you afterwards, because that's kind of my little mission at the moment, because I'm like, my son's six, and I, I don't want him to... Yeah, I don't want him to grow up in a city with no opportunities. Um, so, yeah. It's interesting thinking about... Um, so we've, we, we're launching this collection of essays later today with the British Council, and, um, and it's included um, about uh, 16 different uh, perspectives on arts and the public realm, so outside of venues such as this, um, in its broadest sense, uh, in, in places all over the world, so from Cairo to Lagos to Rio, uh, all sorts of different places. And it's been really fascinating hearing from artists that are writing as part of that collection, and producers and policymakers and architects. And, um, and there, are, there are commonalities. There are things that are emerging across very, very different contexts and conditions. Uh, one of those being... Uh, the digital realm and the way in which that's shifting. Uh, our, our cultural consumption, our sense of control, of power, etc. Um, but one of the things that's very distinctive, going back to David's point about context and the understanding of context, is that um, is the is the stable is the stable or destabilized conditions that you are living and working in. So in some cases, the public realm, uh, let's say in Cairo, after the Arab Spring, uh, actually there was a sort of, um, uh, sort of self-securing uh, culture of the public realm that wasn't policed by state forces. It was, there was uh, areas of exclusion in the city you wouldn't go into because it had been taken over by certain groups or certain publics. And, and, I, and I, I think that's, that's vastly different <coughs> to an understanding if you're writing about arts in the public realm in the UK in a particular moment in time. And equally, hugely different in talking uh, about um, Bristol's past, for example, and the way in which it needs to come to terms with its own very specific histories and the way in which this, this, this um, city formed from St. Helens. So, so whilst I, I think what's interesting for us <coughs> at situations, we used to feel that we went in under the skin of a place to get to understand it, get to understand its conditions, and there were similarities in how we work from place to place. But then you have to kind of understand... Um, that conditions aren't simply about a place's past, but they're also about that each place is in a state of becoming. Mm. So that can change very, very quickly in terms of an administration, in terms of politics. You only have to look at what happened in Charlottesville to understand that the whipping up of the far right around particular public realm, for example, in certain places can also change very, very fast. So, so I think this sort of notion of cities being different from each other because they're their particular history or their population growth, for example, is, is slightly askew because it, it, it's, not, 
it's not a sophisticated understanding yeah. of the conditions you're working with. And what's funny about that, in a way, is globalisation, obviously, because young people in Bradford will see, yeah. say, Glastonbury Festival or whatever, or they'll see um, video, they see things, they see it, and they want it, and they don't have it. So it's like, because we've, we all see it all the time, yeah. and, then, and then, especially, I suppose I get really angry because I, co I come to things like this, and I see how much other cities have got, or, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, oh... And then you go back, and then the kids in Bradford, even though they might not be going out and going to those places, they're seeing it all the time on TV. So it's like, well, actually, you, they do want the same. We're keeping the distinctness of those places, but at the moment, the thing that distinguishes is Bradford, in a way, is, is its poverty, you know, and is its amount of young people who are living in poverty. And I think, well, we can't, we can't be like, oh, well, that's just different, that's just Bradford. I know that's not what you're saying, but I think it's something about, well, going, okay, how do we also support those young people to be able to have an equality of opportunity that young people in Bristol might have. Okay, other question? Yes, over here. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Rosalie from We The Curious across the river. Um, I've spent the last 10 years moving house a lot. Like, I've not lived in the same place for more than a year because of the rental situation. Um, I just wondered, it's a bit of a personal question, I hope you don't mind, but um, one, one effect of that is that I've never felt embedded in a community um, because I just haven't lived in any communities for long enough to be part of that. I'm talking about a kind of community of place, I guess. I was interested if, if any of you have... Um, Sally talked about it in the last panel a bit about going to the town hall and sitting and, you know, being part of her kind of city in that civic way. But I just wanted on a personal level what connects you to your communities and if you have any things that you do in your life or people that you connect with in your life that make you feel like you're part of a community. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Bradford, so it's that funny thing where um, I go to things and I, or just around town, or say if we've, we did like a youth project last year, I just walk down the street and I see someone I know who's got a teenager and I say, oh, you know, what's your son doing, get him down or whatever. So that's obviously, I'm very embedded in that way. But then I think in terms of the city council and stuff, because it's small, we've been, we go to those meetings, those kind of, and we're a really tiny organisation, but we will get invited along to like lots of council meetings and we'll go and sit in and see what they're up to and stuff like that. So I suppose that all helps. And really having Speaker's Corner. So Speaker's Corner is the shop that I talked about. And basically it's, it's just, it's a shop. It's probably about as big as this stage kind of thing. And, um, and because it's co-programmed by lots of teenage girls and women, um, it means that what happens in there is really different. And things happen all the time where someone might have come to an event or come to a discussion and then they say, oh, we've got a mental health group and we've lost our funding, which this is a really tiny amount of funding. They lost their funding of £400, which meant they couldn't pay for their room hire anymore. That was for a year. Um, and they were like, oh, we've, we've been meeting in the shopping centre, but it's too noisy and people aren't coming because they've got lots of different mental health issues, so they don't want to go to a public space in that way. Can we use Speaker's Corner? So we are, I mean, it's kind of, a, I'm 
waiting for the time when something really disastrous happens and it sets on fire. Um, but it's like, because we will just give, we will just give people the keys <laughs> with a certain amount of, but you know, like we're just like, yeah, okay, because it feels ridiculous that we've got a building, an empty space, and it not being used. So we're just always trying for it to be used. So we, I think that's the thing, like it's at Bristol, isn't it? We the curious. <coughs> yeah, so I'm sure that you've got lots of rooms that are empty right now. And it's like actually to feel part of a place is just there's so many people who need the space just bring them in and then straight away you will start meeting people who live here and you, and you will feel that community and the organisation will feel that community because they're allowing and trusting people to come in a new space. It's like meeting rooms, you know, things like that, like that will be sat empty. There's probably, like, talk about empty shops and empty buildings. There'll be empty, nice, heated places with good facilities that are empty right now that people are in. So it's almost like could there be some kind of centralised booking system for the city that so that groups could access those things like could that happen and you just make it accessible so people could could book a nice room for the mental health group you know what i mean it's like i think that's what we need to start doing is allowing more fluidity between public buildings and the people who need them who actually pay for them patrick um yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. When I, when I started in, 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 in the job and when I was in, in St. Helens, the, the local newspaper said um, Irishman Patrick Fox. That was, that was how they described me. So St. Helens is 96% white British. It's one of the, the least diverse boroughs in the entire country. Um, so I, I'm, I'm an exotic other, actually, which is quite, quite an interesting thing to be. I don't think I've ever been that in my life. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's interesting as a, as a, so the reason that this place exists is that it formed around work. It formed around a canal, it formed around coal, it formed around industry, and that created a rhythm and a pattern and a community. Um, and all of those things have been systematically stripped away, and what's left is a collection of people. Um, so I'm really, really intrigued about the question of what constitutes a community. What does it mean to live in a shared space? And I think increasingly um, it becomes a little bit less about geography and it becomes about um, where you locate yourself. So you could be in your bedroom playing a video game with a friend who lives in Chile, and, or you could be watching Glastonbury and know that that's at distance. So I think it's the, the kind of idea of communities of interest is, is in some ways... Um, Kind of more interesting to me because I think we're going to go further and further down that route as we become um, in, a, in a more kind of digital world or we become more more isolated. Actually, the, the chance encounter becomes less and less possible. I mean, it's so it's, it's it's radical to walk around the park with a dog and bump into someone and have a conversation. I mean, the, when we were doing the project with Mark with the young people giving the flowers out, the most remarkable thing about that was it was just these interactions between people. In, in, a, in a town centre, in a public space, and a lot of intergenerational interactions, and they just don't happen. There are no spaces for people just to convene and be without them having to buy a cup of coffee or spend money or just, or just be. Um, and I think in terms of the town hall or the kind of public sphere, when people be and they convene and they collect, that's when things happen. That's when, that's when movements emerge. That's when change becomes a possibility because things will bubble to the surface. But um, what we've got is, is, the, is a lack of opportunity for people just to, to exist together. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's, an, it's an interesting one in terms of the, the community question for me. Question. Yes, Penny here. Hello, Penny, Norwest Media Centre. Um, I just want to say I found it incredibly inspiring this morning. Thank you very much. All the speakers are fantastic in the room. It's really, really good to uh, start uh, talking. Um, Bristol's in a, an interesting time at the moment. We have a lot of challenges within the arts and the creative 
organisations and institutions. Um, and there was a couple of things that I wanted to say, really. One was um, I've been really interested in the thinking about how we share our methodologies and our practices. Um, but how we do that, how we do that whilst retaining expertise is, is really interesting. But how do we also um, go within the granularity of that? So you can talk about case studies, you can show them, but actually it's the bits in between and the connections and, you know, yet again, going back to the sewage person, who are they? How do you make those connections? So um, I had a really good chat with David and we were talking about maybe sharing across teams. So opening up that, thinking of new ways forward, but also having a, a, an openness um, and a transparency in which to be able to take risks, to be able to have a non-judgmental <coughs> place that we can all talk, um, because we all want change, we all want to do it well, and we all want to do it better. So the only way of doing it better is to share, I think. Andrew, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I completely recognize that there are some things which are contextually specific, and. Uh, uh, but there are also uh, uh, practices which uh, can be adapted or, or replicated in other areas. And I said earlier that actually in the social sector there are lots of models for how you capture what those key ingredients are. And uh, I think of it a bit like cooking, really, which is you know, each of us, when we're preparing a meal, sort of knows uh, that there are certain ingredients that are must-haves in varying quantities in whatever it is that we're cooking, and there are some things that you really ought not to put in there if it's not to be what you want it to be. And it's about identifying what those uh, uh, must-haves are and what those must-nots are and sharing that learning. So that's the sort of methodologies <coughs> and thinking that we're trying to inject into the cultural sector from the social sector. And alongside that, rather than just funding projects, funding the space in which people can come together and the process through which they, they can develop their own work. I'm interested in, in, in reflecting on this morning um, and thinking about changes to organisational culture. So one of the things around sharing expertise and resource and understanding is that sometimes organisational systems and cultures and large organisations are slow, so slow, slow, slow to, to change. And, um, and I, I'm wondering what the Gilbankian can do, <laughs> please, to, um, to shape that up, you know, because we, we haven't got, as Patrick was saying, you know, I'm interested in thinking we haven't got time. We haven't got time to wait another five years before the organisational systems of our sector respond to these really, really urgent issues. So what do you think about... You know how how can we make that change those changes happen? Well, there's there's always a lot to talk about sort of entrepreneurialism, but actually I'm a great believer in intrapreneurialism, in which there are sort of radicals who are uh, operate within systems, and the trick is to connect them because it's really lonely, uh, and uh, actually it's possible to do that. And one of the things that certainly uh, we're trying to do as a, as a foundation, and we're actually, in the UK, a very small part of a very large, big bureaucracy. And it gives us, as a really small operation, an insight into what it is to be part of something big. And it means that, for us, it, it means that we can use that skill and that insight to broker between the small and the large. And that's just one of the things that we try to do. 
Um, it just reminded me of, I don't know if anyone saw the John Berger documentary, but in it he says something like, oh, when I, since being a little boy, I could see how kind of corrupt the world was outside. And whenever I met anyone who kind of, I could tell, felt the same as me, I'd give them a little wink. Um, <laughs> and it's something about, like, the winking between the organisations and between the people, is that when you know, oh, yeah, you get it, and then you give each other a wink, and then you know, right. I mean, but there's something about that. Yeah, start to use that. I won't mention the special handshake. <laughs> yes, back here. Thanks. Hi, uh, Rob McPherson, Birmingham Hippodrome. I'm interested, I mean, I know we're in a kind of thought leadership context here, and we're probably just being provocative, and I think you have asked Evie and Patrick to be provocative, so... I'm not sure how much of what you say you absolutely believe, but if you are going to be in receipt of Arts Council funding, and yet you, you both seem somewhat, well, resentful perhaps, you, you do have to be accountable for that, don't you? And you have to play by those rules. And there yeah. are criteria that you must have known about before you got into it. Yeah. So in an ideal world, what would be the best funding structure for you? Would it be just go with a Gulbenkian, go to a millionaire, and just do what you like? Or... Or trade. Sounds <laughs> that sounds brilliant. What, uh, <laughs> what, what's best case scenario for you? Because you, you don't seem very happy with what you've got. Uh, um, I'd like to categorically say I'm not. Um, um, thank you, Arts Council, for your funding. Um, it's really appreciated. I don't think it, I, I know. I absolutely believe in, in the public purse supporting arts and culture. Absolutely. And I don't mean to come across as unappreciative or ungrateful to that. I think it's something to be completely celebrated and as Sally mentioned earlier that's not the situation throughout the world and, and I think what I'm, what I'm also aware of is the responsibility that comes with that and the privilege that comes with that so I'm very very um, thoughtful about how, how I use that position and it's really important to do that in a way that feels valuable and useful and, and with integrity and I think that's, that's what sits with me it's, it's, a, it's a great responsibility and a, and a privilege so it's not that I think it's, a, it's an absolute disgrace that I'm you know, putting in those I, I'm putting the applications in and I'm responding to the, to the, the, the criteria of those applications and, um, and, you know, and I think what I'm also conscious of is that um, there are conversations or the things that I can do within those systems that allow for different conversations to happen so for example you know, it's not a coincidence that we're doing a 12-year project. Um, that, that is a provocation back to the sector, back to funders, about how do we think more longitudinally. You know, it's, not, it's not a coincidence that we're working within the context of, of um, public health to look at the kind of a more holistic approach to how arts could be commissioned within, within those contexts without that meaning and instrumentalisation of the arts. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've made a decision to work within the framework and the system and try and affect change where I can. Um, and that's, that's, that's a personal decision that I think everyone has to make. Um, but I absolutely believe in the, in the public support of, mm. of, um, um, of, of arts and culture as I do other public services. And I think it's important that we walk in solidarity with those other services that are, that are going through similar crisis to, to what we are. Yeah, I totally echo that, Patrick. I think the thing with me, why we've been a bit like resistant to becoming an MPO is because I do really respect the accountability and I know how much paperwork that involves because that's what it is, essentially. It's a lot of paperwork. But from the beginning, I've never resented doing an Arts Council funding application or doing a, a report or anything like that because I, be I completely believe in accountability. And I don't think the big institutions are that accountable, to be honest, because there's a lot of money 
wasted. There's a lot of like private pet projects and a lot of kind of like nepotism and there's a lot of unaccountability. And because I so strongly believe in accountability, that's why we didn't want to go into it in a, in a certain way because then you have got to match and meet all these criteria and da, 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 and you've got to operate in a way that you might not have done. And actually, we've always been very fundable. We've always been doing the work. We are like freaking the embodiment of great art for everybody or whatever like do you know what I mean but but the thing is is that so we've been doing that and that's why the arts council are like yes please come to us because it makes them look good to be honest because there's so many arts council fund organizations that make them look bad because they're getting so much money so you know what I mean but it, that's what's going on so I'm like it's not it's just that I it's I'm completely grateful of course it's brilliant and of course I think we should get more money like it'd be brilliant but it's it is uh, yeah in an ideal world it would be like I spoke to someone who's worked at the Arts Council for years, like 40 years I mean, she said they used to get a one piece of paper and they'd go through and there'd be some numbers on there and some things and they'd go great, 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 great and they'd give you the money. Now it's like you have to write, you know, a 50 page business plan and whatever, you know, and it's like how many business plans, now I'm writing one and it's kind of useful, but this is my battle of the professional, the professional versus the amateur, whatever, is, is there's a usefulness to it and then there's also a lot of generic stuff, because I've been reading other people's business plans to understand what I've got to do and it's just so much is generic and so much isn't done and so much isn't carried through it is just words and it's a waste of time a lot of that is a waste of time and that's not about being accountable or not it's, being accountable to me means doing the work and doing it really well and having really good ideas and doing really good ideas really well with, with lots of people that's what being accountable to me means it doesn't mean doing a risk register and a, you know like obviously yeah you've got to be accountable for the risks that you're taking with people but then, I don't know, basically, I'm not against getting public money. I think it's brilliant. I think it's amazing that we've got public services. I'm a complete, that's, you know, I completely believe in public services. What I don't like is when other public services get cut. The Arts Council actually hasn't had that many cuts. Not really. In fact, I heard a rumour, I don't know if this is true, but that the reason this year there wasn't, normally when the NPO round happens, lots of people leave the NPO. Um, but apparently this year they've not really cut lots of other MPOs and they've joined more because they had to spend their reserves because they were worried that the Arts Council were going to take their reserves away. So actually some MPOs that maybe should have been cut haven't been cut because the Arts Council don't want their money to get taken by the government. And actually, yeah, of course everyone should be accountable and some places should, get, you know, some MPOs aren't doing it, they should get cut. And yeah, I think we should be setting fire to some of our big buildings so that the money <laughs> isn't... No, but no, so that the money isn't centralised in buildings because those, you know, and that's, I think... They would say that as well. That's why we don't necessarily want to build this. You, you're a caretaker, but, uh, but actually, you know, there's all the people who need the money. I, don't, I mean, it's a big debate, but I'm 100% like, great, give us the money. But I, the reason I didn't want to become an MPO is because you become a businesswoman. That's what it is. And I never thought I would be that. So I'm I mean, like... certainly what comes through, <laughs> interestingly, from, from the report, I'm going to come to down here, if we could get the mic down here, that'd be great. Um, it is also, though, that, that, that is there not a danger that, um, the, for those who don't know what an MPO is, uh, because we may have international guests as well and people whose lives aren't ruled by MPO, uh, it's a national portfolio organisation, and that's just one of the ways in which arts and, uh, arts and culture are funded through the Arts Council of England. Um, and and in, in some ways it's about breaking out of that sort of notion of delivery of a service to a set of criteria. Um, and certainly what the Arts Council are saying, certainly to us here at Arnold Feeney, is you know, we have to diversify our income streams. We have to figure out ways in which we can um, fund and resource and cleverly work together 
to, uh, to, to, to deliver arts and culture in the future. Uh, arts Council grants, how, whatever form they come in, whatever you decide to apply for, are just one of the ways in which we need to be thinking about that cleverly in the future. So, um, I'm gonna, yeah. yes, yeah. do you want to say well, something? Just, just, on, just on that point, just to say also, just, you know, um, Arts Council or these institutions or, you know, or these structures that we talk about, they're made up of people at the end of the day and, um, and, and, we, and we work together to take the best bits forward and discard the worst bits and, and that's something that I'm committed to and I think that that's about us all listening to each other um, and we're all on the same side ultimately. Yeah. That assessment really sharp but I, I think I always like um, liken it to like when you become a mum or a dad no one ever tells you that you're actually going to become a housewife and I think it's the same thing like <laughs> when you become an artist no one tells you you're going to become a business person and that's where it's Difficult, you know. Um, hello, my name's Paula Oral. Um, I work for the Arts Council of England. Um, <laughs> and actually, just wanted to reiterate what you're saying. I've just been working for them for a month now, and I've been out of the UK art system for three years. Um, and I've watched from afar on the other side of the world um, a place called Plymouth grow and grow, and I used to work there. Um, for 10 years and I've seen the Arts Council's investment there have such a massive change on the life and wealth of people there. The Commonwealth of people indeed as well. And I'm sat next to Director of Take Apart which is now a national portfolio organisation that's actually embedded itself for 10 years in the place and seen it grow and will have sustained funding from an organisation, the Arts Council of England, that I think we, we just basically... It seems to be a lot of bashing going around and and I'm quite sort of slightly disappointed by that as well because I've seen in a population of 4 million people in New Zealand where there's 11 million dedicated to the arts and culture, it's such a tiny, tiny, tiny amount of money compared to what is here and it's tough, it's even tougher there. Um, but I've seen a massive growth by investment. And my concern is that if we keep these conversations of, like, are the arts, the arts councils the other? And I've gone to the other side to working for them where I've been working in the public sector. I just think we need to find ways that these organisations, you, your organisations and the way that you're developing, to actually naturally come together and have a collegiate conversation that's healthy for the world we live in. And... We've got too many other challenges going on, um, and actually we need to be looking to those as well. So I just wanted to say that, because I've been only here two months back in the UK, and it's amazing. It's really amazing to actually feel amongst and be in a city of Bristol that has so much opportunity, um, and has always had opportunity. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you. Time for maybe one more question or point. Yes, here, middle. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to bring it back to people, um, if that's all right, because um, I chair Access All Areas, which is equally joining the national portfolio, um, which is we're incredibly excited about, but I guess in my role as chair, we work, um, we're based out of the London Borough of Hackney. We work and support learning disabled and autistic um, <coughs> artists. And our focus is, is primarily on making high quality art that really challenges and provokes people. Um, 
we've got a piece coming out in the new year called Madhouse, which is looking at um, social care moving from institutions actually to people's bedrooms, which we're working on with the Barbican. And I sat in a board meeting this week where we're, we're, we're still putting together our business plan. We're still just kind of trying to figure out exactly what our purpose is. Um, because it's that really fine line of like, well, how far do we become this campaigning organisation? Because we've, we're really rooted in our community. We've got 40 years of working in Hackney. And we're working with a population who have little to do and little to support them. But what I'm conscious of is what effect that has on my artistic team. And how, right now, do I support, you've talked about the struggles facing leaders, and it's like, we've got this amazing opportunity as a company, but how, you know, I, I don't want that to be at the expense of people's well-being. So any tips of, of how practically I can support people right now would be amazing. Patrick, do you want to touch on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's actually, that, that, that very question is one of the, one of the features within our um, application for the national portfolio, because I think there is a missing layer of, of support there, actually, because you're, we're all working in, in a variety of different contexts and settings, and you're quite often you're isolated and you're, and you're working on your own, and there's, there's very little um, structural support sometimes, particularly, I would say, for artists. You know, you're, you're, you're working quite vulnerably and on your own, and you're using your good instincts quite a lot of the time to navigate particular um, situations that are that are very complex, and I think that there's not a, a space necessarily that I know of um, that we can we can convene and have conversations about what's difficult. We can seek professional development. We can seek mentoring, support for each other. So that's something that that we we're really keen to do as an organisation on a on a kind of national um, stage. Because um, when when you're working at the you know within that kind of arts activism realm, um, you, you are faced with with decisions and considerations every day that are outside of the job description. They're, they're you as citizen, they're you as person, and I think it's a very particular type of um, um, realm to, to situate yourself in, and I, I don't necessarily think that the current arts infrastructure um, has a way of, of nurturing or supporting that type of practice, and I think that that is something that um, we, we can do collectively, um, because I feel like you know things like the inquiry and things like other, um, like the Create People and Places program, or the fact that Arts Council are funding organisations like ourselves and Commonwealth. There's a, there's a will out there, and there's a groundswell, and there's, a, there's as, as Claire mentioned, there's a shift that this work isn't sitting on the kind of um, the, the margins anymore. It's becoming a, a very kind of sophisticated and um, kind of powerful critical mass, and we need to create the right structures to support that because um, th there's work to be done. I mean, I, I think to conclude, what, what, what I've at least heard this morning, and thank you so much for your generosity and your, your intelligence of your questions and your contributions, is that um, there is in this room right now an extraordinary network of experience and expertise and knowledge, uh, a support structure actually for producing <coughs> extraordinary encounters. You know, a little bit of what we've touched on, we've talked a lot about bureaucracy, but actually what we're beginning to see through Evie's images, through Patrick's images, is moments of joy, moments of unsettling, moments of breakthrough, imagination, um, solutions to major city problems. Um, and I, I think that, you know, it's, it's holding on to some of those things that we want to make happen, but understanding the difficulties and challenges of doing so through a support structure together. I know that um, David is talking about, David Jubb is talking about a network 
of organizations and peers across the country who are working in this way, Patrick now has a resource through the National Portfolio Funding of a, of a resource of knowledge. And here at Arnold Feeney, we're going to be developing a real understanding of skills development in engagement and producing um, a thought experiment over the next year. So this is, this is in some ways a, just a node in all of these, how these conversations are going to unfold over the next 12 months, I hope with uh, renewed support from Gulbenkian as well, and um, incredibly exciting to witness and to be a part of. So thank you so much for your generosity, and thank you to the three of you very much. Thank you.